Welcome to another episode of Hobbit in Canada. I'm your host, Tom, and with me as always... Steve. And Dan. And that's it, because apparently... Uh, yeah, everybody else has lives. Yeah, real world gets in the way, huh? Exactly. I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's awesome or sad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we propagate the unsureness. Fair enough. So we're just assuming that Mike painted... I, I want to say that he painted, like, a... A factor greater than us. I'm gonna go with but I, the entire Silver Tower box set. But I don't know. I hope he painted. We know the you painted one model, so he actually could. What did I? Oh, I did. You, you painted a model, so like he actually could do a what multiple greater time? than us. I can't remember if I mentioned that last time. I wouldn't know. I wasn't here. Okay. You anyway. were starting on a model, I think. So this week in hobby, Mike painted more than the rest of us. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, I'm moving into my new place, so my hobby time was largely spent setting up my new hobby room. Which, I feel like this is deja vu. This has happened at least like five times on this podcast where you've set up a new hobby room. Somewhere. Yeah, but this one is like legit. Yeah, it is pretty sweet. You know, like how you made sure that the of the two bedrooms in your new place, the bigger one is the hobby room because that's totally what you want. I love it. Well, I was talking with Dan, and really, what do I need in a bedroom? A bed? Like Somewhere to put clothes. You were talking with Dan as your like source of reason and truth around hobby space. <laughs> no, 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 no. What do you no, need no. a bed for? That's going to just be more gaming area. Come on, man. Just get like a futon in the living room. Yeah, get one of those Murphy beds that pulls out of the wall. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. It'd be pretty I, perfect. Yeah. Or a gaming table that could be on the wall. Pull out. A Murphy and table. Then, then you could also put your mattress on top of it. And leave it outside when you don't need it. For when I need to play that, like, 6 by 8 historicals game. <laughs> sure, sure. That sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, so, so that was you. Uh, yeah. Okay. I've got more to talk about because there'll be lock and load, but because, you know, I missed last week. Yeah, but that, for we'll your hobby this later. last two weeks. Yeah, I did a lot before lock and load. Okay, well, we'll talk about that after. Yeah. Because kind of, you can even go ham on that. Dan, how about you? Well, I can't remember if I... I prefer Hogwild, by the way. Oh, <laughs> So I can't remember if I uh, fully finished painting the um, Zinch Sorcerer Lord for last week's episode, or if I was just mostly done at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But um, so that is a model that I had base coated from way back in the day, and I painted him up as like potentially a Silver Tower model, but mostly just a really fun Zinch model that I always wanted to go finish. Mm-hmm. So I did. Nice. And uh, he has like the crushed glass snow base and stuff like that, like we were talking about uh, the other episode as well. So you got to try that out on him, that kind of thing. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. I don't think I have lung cancer. Well, that won't show up probably for at least another five years, so you're good. So I'm pretty much safe. Cool. But, um, so yeah, there's that. And in more recent hobby, it's kind of like hobby because it used Microsoft Paint, which is kind of like regular paint. Uh, but yeah. uh, I was doing some, like, digital artwork. I was teaching myself a bit of, um, like, the 8-bit pixel art yep. style while doing up some MechWare Online style mechs. They actually look like, pretty cool. Yeah, so they're really tiny. They're, like, 60 by, like, 40 pixels and stuff like that, which is a really Hence unique challenge. Name pixel art it's kind of a thing <laughs> yeah so it's uh, totally different and r- really interesting it was just a fun way to kill some time in the last little while while stressing out over potentially buying a condo so nice it's a good way to procrastinate awesome man uh i'm still working on my wraith night actually i know it's uh barely noticeable but i got a lot more of the blue done on the legs uh it takes for bloody ever holy 
uh, upper thighs for all of you that can't see Tom looking at the model right now. Um, so you're talking about the shading. Yeah, the shading. So I've been juicing blue into the crevices of my red Wraith Knight. It's really weird. It's difficult to not make it look blotchy, and it takes a huge amount of time. I do like it. Well, it would take a lot of time, because you would have to stop to make Tobias Fumke references constantly. <laughs> like, oh, I blew myself. Oh, God. But no, that, I would, actually, that would slow down progress. I do like the way it's turning out. It's adding a lot more definition to the model. Um, I think it's going to look really cool, especially... I, one of the things that I'm learning with it is where it's useful and where it's not. So in a lot of the smooth transitions, it's hugely useful. Uh, it makes a big difference, especially on, like the, like I said, on the, the sort of... If you know the Wraith Knight model, everything's smooth, basically. All the surfaces kind of blend together. So to give it a little extra contrast, uh, I think it looks pretty good. And I think it'll look really cool on the arms of the model. So how are you actually applying the blue paint onto this model? So what I'm doing is I'm mixing in, uh, not Regal, uh, the dark... I, the equivalent of Regal. I can never remember the name of it because it's a new name. Regal Blue. Yeah, honestly, I'm still sure. really bad with current okay. Citadel names. Uh, I'm then cutting it with about half of the satin stuff because this is probably... Probably it's a little bit more than you should, but it seems to be working pretty well after a little bit of uh, practice. So a little satin medium, and then I'm basically thinning it down to the consistency of water. Uh, and full-on just like applying it almost not quite to the level of like an ink where I'm letting it run into the crevices and then I'm basically erasing it. So erasing the um, meniscus that forms where we have a thick line. Yeah. So I'm going through removing that and then sort of feathering it out and, and rinse and repeat. So I start with like a pretty serious area uh, feather and then I work my way down to the final line. Have you thought about doing it a little bit differently where you do a little bit of a thick, like leave the paint thicker and then do a thin line and then try and bring it out instead of Yeah, I did. I, that's what I started with because I wanted it to be lazy and fast. Uh, blue over red doesn't work that way. It ends up getting blotchy underneath of it and it looks weird and it just does not turn out Well, right. but if you're doing, uh, if you're doing kind of that um, feathering technique where you're actually putting down like a saliva layer underneath where you're going to be brushing yeah. the paint back, it does actually... That's work. what the initial initial one, like the initial layer where it's a little thicker and then I'm pulling it out is doing and then doing it again and again and I have a lot more control because I can actually erase okay. it a little bit. I've tried it both ways because I can, I can do the wet blending thing, uh, which is kind of I think what you're going for a little bit there. The two brush blend. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, or as Dan calls it, the paint eating feather. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Gross. Well, because you don't need to use two brushes if you just eat the paint off the first one. Yeah, if you're just a hardcore brush licker like me, you don't need two brushes. You just end up with, like, green teeth or whatever by the time you're done. That's gross. Whatever color you're painting. Yeah, no, it's it's actually quite hard to juice a color that does not actually normally go as a shade. That's what I've learned. Uh, but it works pretty well once you, once you sort of master it. Cool. Well, it's looking great for... Um, those people at home that cannot see it right now. Yeah, once I get it finished up, it's uh, it's going to be pretty cool. I'm looking forward to, to getting that model done again. <laughs> Not the first time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, it's crazy, though, when you compare him to the other Wraith Knight that doesn't get to see the table anymore due to the fact that he's a Lord of War now, too. Um, it's crazy how much more contrast there is here. And that's using an airbrush with a lot of zenithal work on the pre other one as well. So it kind of gives you that feeling of, like, you know, everybody's talking about airbrush, get all those crazy blends, crazy highlights, that kind of stuff. You can do that, but if you really want to bring it to a certain, you know, painting competition level, you need to get a brush on it. Oh, I don't absolutely. think there's a way to strictly airbrush your way to, like, a competition level piece. I can guarantee you not. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people do some pretty amazing stuff out there, but yeah, this is one of those things where I'm, you know, quite happy with the results, but it, holy crap, it takes forever. Yeah, yeah. Unless you want to spend more time applying and removing masking fluid than actually painting the model. Yeah. Yeah. You have to use a regular brush technique. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're, you really hit the nail on the head where you're talking about this is in the context of really trying to push it up beyond where it's just a gaming piece into something else. Yeah. And if you are doing just a gaming piece, I'd still advocate doing a couple manual shades after you airbrush. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. But I, for most people, if you are just getting, a, like, base coat Zenithal, if you're wanting a gaming piece on the table, it's probably good enough. I also, one of the other things, though, that I, I this is, we're off a little, little bit of a tangent, but hey, we got time. This There's is a relevant three. one. There's only three of us. Um, if you're doing black, though, I still think that, that might be my new hardest color to blend with a brush. I'm having a lot of trouble doing black blends from through the grays up to like the really, really crazy uh, shades. You know what I'm talking about? So they almost go to like the whites and that kind of stuff. The then very, try not going through gray. It actually gets a lot easier if you go through teals or browns. That's, yeah, you're entirely right. But like I saw a particular uh, piece on Cool, many are, are not. I can't remember what it was. It was a really cool sculpt. It was like a sci fi sniper. It's a one off, um, it'd be like Inquisitor scale model. And it had like a lot of fractal surfaces, so it was like quite a lot of um, square plates. And he had done every single one with a complete fade from basically what would be black to white, with other shades in the in between. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it was insane. <laughs> and I actually didn't think it looked that good because it was quite jarring to look at it like as a whole piece. Like it was holy crap, what's going on here? You can't really see the model. All you could see was the paint technique. But the individual black plates or what I was trying to emulate, where he was going basically to paint uh, a gloss surface in matte. So it was like non-metallic sense. black. Exactly. More or less, I guess. And it was straight <laughs> gray, and it was it was really, really cool, and I attempted that with some of the, some test uh, pieces, and no. <laughs> That's, that is the hardest thing, I think, to blend. Wow. Yeah, I, just to push this segment even a little bit longer, the question I have for you, if you're, if you're sitting down, you look at a model... And you like the individual components of how they're painted, but don't like the, how it looks on a model overall. Mm -hmm. Is that really a technique you want to be striving for? No, but that's also very different. Like, I'll try and find the model uh, after the podcast to show you guys. But what I mean is it, it honestly had every single surface was a flat piece and probably only, you know, if, if it was like uh, on, on this on a Wraith night, it would be like hundreds of pieces just on a chess piece, all of little like different angles that he yeah. had done. So it would be a lot different. You wouldn't be doing that technique on the Wraith Knight, but I do want to try the pieces that were black and use that same technique on the larger, like uh, the Wraith veins and that kind of stuff. I would because be, it's not so overwhelming. I would be a little cautious, just as from my thoughts, um, with something like that where it is really almost like a non-metallic metal, yeah. of being careful and try, try not to shoehorn that look into another scheme. Oh, yeah, no. Because you're getting such a crazy gradient on that I one might, panel. I might not be explaining it completely well, uh, but you, you should see it. It's actually okay, sure. really yeah, we'll, cool. We'll check it out. Um, yeah. We'll probably cut that there. So uh, <laughs> other, let's move on to the next one then. Well, it's really kind of weird having only three of us here. Yeah, I know. I feel like we missed a lot, but whatever. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So shut up and take my money. Steve, who's getting your money? Uh, car stuff, unfortunately, it looks like. So nothing exciting around my end of things. I gotta, yeah, be broke for a bit. Fair enough. Dan? 
Uh, but the only thing for myself would be the, um, I picked up the Forge World Praetor that was, like, limited edition, only available in the stores that weekend. That was weird that they had Forge World stuff in the stores. Yeah, I think... That's cool. I honestly think it was probably a test run for the new production facility. Because the model, um, it does have some of the really, like, a couple of little areas where it has the telltale signs of being a pure digital sculpt that was then 3D printed. Hmm. Uh, So I don't think that was ever physically sculpted in the real world before it got shot out of a 3D printer somewhere, but gorgeous looking model. It's one of the um, cleanest casts of a forgeable model I've seen in a very long time, and I went through a whole bunch of the ones in the store, you know, like... You, like you could do with a fine cast or any other resin model, you just want to check and make sure you're getting one that's not particularly warped or whatever. Aside from a couple that had slightly curvy blades, they all actually looked like immaculately cast. Weird. So if this was a like no run, bubbles, no flash, nothing. The one that I did end up picking up has two tiny little bubbles in one of its feet, like right around the edge of the foot. That's it. There's very really? s- very very slight mold lines on the model, but other than that, no bubbles. Doesn't like the the blade wasn't warped at all. The handle of his double-handed glaive wasn't um, warped at all. So it huh. if it was a test of a new production technique, the resin also looked a slightly different uh, color and texture than usual. Whatever it's do, whatever they're doing, it's working. So wow. If it's a production test of the new facility that they supposedly got set up over there, then you know it is firing on all cylinders. Awesome. And it's yeah, nice model. It was fifty bucks, but I. A while ago, I accidentally picked up two copies of the same book. I bought one. I pre-ordered it online, forgot I pre-ordered it, and then bought it again. So I got to trade in a second copy of whichever book has the sigillite on the front of it from Horus Heresy. Nice. One of the more recent ones. I accidentally bought two, so I basically got the Marine guy for like $15. So it was co- sort of free almost. Kind of. If I bought <laughs> enough of them, it would have been eventually so free. So you didn't have to even take your money. Uh, Tom. Oh, my God. So not only has it been two weeks, but Lock and Load was in that two weeks. You bought all the things. Um, Mark III came out. Yes. Uh, so officially Mark III launches on Wednesday of this week um, for all of the stores, but they had pre-release for everything at Lock and Load. So I bought the Merc deck, the Scorn deck, and the new Scorn starter. Um, and have we talked, have I told you guys about these starters yet? Of exactly what's uh, in it? A little bit, but not, I don't think. Don't think on air. Holy shit, are they amazing. So, in the starter set, it's basically the same size starter box or battle box that you used to get okay. for about the same price. I okay. think they go for 40 US. Okay. And you get, on top of that, um, focus tokens and spell tokens. You get dice come in the box. You get a mini version of the rule book, which has all of the rules for War Machine and Hordes in it, regardless of which, fac- which faction you're really? picking up. It comes with... Uh, a little shitty measuring thing, which is kind of, it's like a little piece of paper with inches on it, so it's kind of moot, but you've got it, and it comes with a fold-out playing surface to play on, and it comes with a fold-out linear obstacle as well. Okay, you know what that sounds exactly like is Operation Ice Storm, or any of the starter sets for Infinity, because they have the same sort of idea of a little paper crappy ruler that's got like a bunch of different techie-looking things on it. They got the dice, got the rules. But this is every faction has one of these. Yeah, that's cool. So really and they cool. do still they're re, re, they're releasing brand new two player starters as well. I was going to say because the uh, the difference is you buy uh, any other game system out there. I think you buy a starter box. It comes with two armies and probably yeah. one you don't want. And so the way that they the Privateer Press does this is they have the two player starter box, which is now going to be Scorn and Trolls for Hordes and Cricks and Signar. 
that would make sense for because it's basically the factions that weren't in the previous editions. Okay. So they just they switched it up, so you get the two other ones this time around. Okay. And those ones come with even more stuff because not really? only do you get the battle box, you get basically the battle group plus a unit of infantry uh, for each side in those boxes. They're amazing deals. Gotcha. But some of the coolest things about this, first off, when I cracked open the box, all of the new faction boxes have colored plastic. So my scorn box was red, a troll box is blue, a signar box is a is a darker like So like more, the injection molded plastic is actually like dyed. Yeah. Like the whole spirit. So if you are a brand gotcha. new player, you both pick up your sets, you glue them together, and you're good to go for like your game pieces look different and unique, and then you can oh. go back and paint them. What's even better, there's almost no mold lines. Uh, I opened up the scorn, Steve opened up the ret and the circle. Ryan opened up the uh, the Menoth and the Trolls, and almost none of the models had mold lines. Like, they are beautifully cast. Wow. Hmm. So, they're upping their game for the, for the actual figure quality right now, and the new sculpts are amazing. If you take a look, none of the, the War Beasts or the War Jacks are different, but it's a brand new caster for every faction is in these starter sets. Hmm. And they're gorgeous. Like, the new Menoth caster is maybe one of the nicest models I've ever seen. Really? He's like this paunchy, fat, power-armored-looking Menite. Yeah. Just phenomenal. That's pretty cool. Uh, so those were great. I also picked up... Um, I might have gone a little bit crazy. A little? And I think every Merc... I think there might have been one or two that I missed, but otherwise every possible Merc model that I didn't already own I also bought. Just to shore up nice. my collection. Just to shore that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's totally reasonable. Yeah, ab- right. Absolutely. Okay. Hey. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then some more of the limited edition uh, gobbers drudges to use for my cephalix, and also have goblins because you know me and goblins. Yep. Um, Shocking. Yeah. So that was lock and load, and then I also spent all of the money on the new hobby room. And not even that much, but like I've got the basically a dual setup now for painting. So there's the two desks with separate drawers. I'm going to have like a brush painting station and an airbrushing painting table. It's pretty awesome. Uh, and if people come over, the, I can easily just move the airbrush and have... Uh, yep. And I'm going to be picking up a few of the lamps like what Ward has that has the halogen and the fluorescent yep. uh, in there as separate bulbs. So you're getting the dual spectrum. The yep. difference is I'm buying two for each table so that I don't have to deal with any shadows. <laughs> No so shadows gonna, ever again. So you're gonna—it's gonna look like a grow up in there with the amount of light you're gonna have. Yeah, basically. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I think that's it. That's pretty cool. I, I'd say you—you you did a, enough damage. You're probably good. Oh yeah. Although, I'm just gonna put this out here right now. Apparently, Privateer Press for their painting competition has cash prizes. Who knew? That's pretty awesome. I didn't really realize this going down. But I came back with like 800 US. That's that's pretty awesome. So despite buying it, yeah, it kind of paid for all of my like gross purchases. So gross as in like large, or they were disgusting because they were yes, yes, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. So we can move on to something more exciting, like Warhammer 40k now. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not technically, but sort of. Yeah, it's, it's in, set in the grimdark universe. Yes, so if you've been living under a rock, GW's been doing a lot of sort of standalone game systems now, but not necessarily board games. So they started this with the Imperial Knight Renegade box, and they're extending this uh, same sort of thing with the uh, Cloud Storm, Storm Cloud 
Attack. Stormcloud Attack. That's what it is. I can never remember. And also the Lost Patrol. It's very similar. Uh, yeah, that's right. Scouts versus Gene Steelers. There's no yep. new miniatures in there. Totally well, There's no new miniatures entirely. in any of these. Yeah, none of them are. They're all basically deal boxes in a way. Like, like the Night Renegade one was a hell of a deal because it was 235 bucks. You got a scenery piece. You got two knights. Uh, it's incredible savings. You basically got one knight for like 10 bucks if you bought the scenery piece in another knight, um, which is stupid. And now these new... Uh, Stormcloud attack boxes, which there are three. Apparently, one is only available in store. The other two are available online, but they seem to also save you around that, or sort of between that $50 mark kind of thing, $40, $50. Bucks. So it's pretty smart on GW's part to give you a bit of a deal. Uh, but the other thing is that they're all standalone games. So one of the things that's kind of surprised me about this is we've been playing a lot of uh, Silver Tower, and the rule set is awesome. I think everybody here is pretty excited about that rule set. Wouldn't you guys If say? we ever actually get it completely right for how we're playing that game, I'm I sure it's so. amazing. I think, yeah, I think we are still pretty far off base in terms of the rules. Because <laughs> only two of the people in the group own the rules, which mm. is a bad start. But Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going on what everybody else tells me what we're doing. <laughs> uh, That's all I do. I just but show nonetheless, up even if it's a version of what we're playing, the rules are pretty solid. Uh, and I would say that with the Imperial Knight game that I have played... That was actually one of the best games I've played in a long time. Well, it sounds like Battletech's u- using 40k models, so that obviously it's using the greatest rule set in the in the universe and the greatest models. So. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. Well, it actually it kind of com- reminded me a little bit of Battletech and X-Wing. Uh, clearly, the GW uh, games designers play other games because the way you sort of reveal your actions in Imperial Knight Renegade is you you have a certain number of points to spend and the more uh, important the action, the later it occurs in the priority sequence. So you kind of have to guess what your opponent's going to do and pre-plan your actions ahead of time, which is a lot like Dials in X-Wing, same sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, and that's a great system. I know, Dan, you play a ton of X-Wing. Yeah, Can't it's- say much bad about the Dials. It's really a fundamental part of that system is trying to figure out your optimal moves, but also your opponents, and the sequence and the order really matters as well. So it it just adds a whole new level of complexity to the game because you're not worried about what you're doing; you have to worry about what your opponent is doing. And you don't get a chance to very fluidly react as the turn goes. You commit all your actions and then reveal them one at a time. So yeah, and this this game was I thought it was so. When you pop open the box, you get a tiny little pamphlet of rules. That's it. Uh, it's mostly sprues, as you would expect, because most people are buying it and are going to throw those rules right out. But <laughs> we were hanging around, and we thought, you know, hey, we've got two Imperial Knights. Why don't we try the game? You only need two dice. Uh, you do need a measuring tape, but you don't really need any scenery. I mean, it would be better if you had any, but you don't need it. Uh, and the game was pleasantly surprising. It reminded me a lot. You were talking about this earlier, Dan, like uh, White Dwarf supplement like they used to do uh small mini games in white dwarf and this is a lot like that um yeah one of the other things that's kind of nice is it reinforces gw can write good rules and does have the ability to do so and really do things that are completely and utterly divorced from the rules mechanics of warhammer 40,000. Oh yeah like the these mini games have nothing in common in terms of the rules mechanics to the traditional gw games yeah i think for me the, the best thing about this is Games Workshop does make really good models. Oh, yeah. And as much as I do not like their games anymore, I'm not going to deny that their models are pretty. So this gives me an opportunity to kind of have a reason to buy some random one-off Games Workshop models and utilize them. 
Yeah. In, in something that is a game and can be fun. So <laughs> is a for game me, and can be fun. For me. Yeah, no, right? I understand what you're saying entirely. Um so it, But even it, veteran players and people that play a ton like me, uh I can it's another gateway drug. Like I can get somebody into Imperial Knight Renegade really quick. It's you know thirty minute games, super fast. Mechanics are simple, and you're also saving money in a lot of these bundles if you are a veteran. Exactly. And so if if either you and your buddy play the same, like or the factions that are lined up in one of these new attack boxes, yes. uh, you can either split it and each save twenty bucks, or if you have both those armies, you can save forty bucks. Like exactly, you've got tons of options. That you can also then play a game with. Which, in all honesty, too, I think our expectation for the quality of these games is, is going to be a little bit lower because it's it's kind of like it well, seems like thrown in rules. I'm not yeah, saying that they're not no, good. I agree. But I couldn't. We agree don't more. need these to be in depth, crazy, amazing things. Well, that's they what I'm just saying. have to be fucking fun. They used to come in the seven dollar monthly uh, magazine that was completely throwaway and unimportant. Like you didn't need those rules. It was just extra, right? Uh, and this is the exact same thing. I couldn't. They're completely the same. Uh, and I remember some of the best rule sets in my mind. One of the ones that I really enjoyed was uh, they had the invasion rule set that came in a white dwarf, which was how to play Battlef- uh, Battlefleet Gothic followed by boarding actions in 40K. I do remember that. And that was an awesome rule set. And it was like a little tacked on thing came white dwarf. Uh, and it, it's, it's nice to see them doing this. One of the things, though, that I'm a little bit concerned about and detracts from the new Stormcloud stuff and also for Lost Patrol uh, is Imperial Knight Renegade. You can pick up two knights and use them in your Chaos Army, use them in your Imperial Army, that kind of thing. You pick up one of these box sets and you don't have a buddy to split this with, like, you can't ally Orcs and Eldar. Or, or sorry, uh, yeah, Orcs and Eldar, you can't ally Tau and Necrons. Like, they're not... They don't really go together. It's not an easy bundle for a veteran player to get into unless they have both armies. Like for myself, if I was super excited about the uh, Eldar one, I would. What do I do with the Orc Flyer? Like I don't know anybody that plays Orcs really that needs it. So does it go on eBay? Do I keep it and just paint it up, kind of, for the game? Like it's a little strange. You know what I'm trying to say? And I think that's why it is. This, it, there is savings in the bundle, right? Yeah. Like, I, if they came out and they released them at the exact same price point, oh, no one as two boxes, yeah. there'd be no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, but saving that kind of like forty bucks off the two models, yeah. Uh, and my point is, is it, it might have the greatest rule set ever, but I don't know who's really after that savings because the knight one had crazy savings, and you could use both in one army. Uh, Silver Tower is a standalone game; you can use other models in. You don't need to have any sort of ally stuff. You just need the bad guys and one hero character. Your friends can do whatever. That's really cool about that game, but. Uh, Betrayal at Calth. You can paint all the Marines in the same colors. You know what I mean? Yep. And you've got a buddy that has Marines because everybody has them. Then you could do that too. Uh, you could play the game as well. But the this one feels a little bit like they might have missed it. Like you know what I mean? I don't. First of all, flyers in 40k aren't that good. Yeah, they are trying to bring them back with some of those like squadron rules. Like if you fly in formation, you get all these weird special rules. But. And I think this is why... Because fl- one flyer sucks, so buy five of them, Yeah, and, and they'll get really confusing, and you might magically win somehow. But the this other thing that's weird, too, is the whole dogfight phase, and they're trying to retroactively fix flyers, and the problem isn't flyers, the problems are vehicles in general. Like the, It's just, I don't, know, I don't know if this is the right move, and I don't know how well they're going to sell. And I think for, for me, this is completely the opposite side here. And Games Workshop has said on multiple occasions they don't give any fucks about their veteran players. They want newer, fresh blood. Oh, that's changing. 
But the, the, they've admittedly pivoted away from that particular. But that had been their basically their mission statement for the better part of thirty years. I don't know. If it was no, I wouldn't go with that. I wouldn't go with that. That was something that came up, I think, only like five years ago in an investors meeting where they were talking about how veteran players only spend a little bit. I don't know. That was, a, that was a pretty research. big mantra 10 years ago when I was working for the company. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. maybe not 30. That's hyperbole. But the, the point is, Games Workshop is seeing, or presumably I would imagine they're seeing, um, a lot of these smaller boxes are selling, and people could pick this up as a game to play with a friend. So yeah. this is an avenue for people that um, do not want to invest in a 40K army because it is a little ridiculous or daunting, yep. or, or can be for a new yep. player, especially a new miniature gamer, yep. um, whereas they can buy these two sweet models and they can play a game, and I think it made more sense to kind of pair off some natural enemies instead of having it like, your Space Marine and Tau are going to be fighting each other, but they're also kind of bros. Like, this gives you a really good narrative in the game, and I feel like it would be wasted if they if they had them as allies. So while it's not good for the vets, like I can see a really good marketing tool. Yeah, but they could that. have done some really cool stuff like Eldar Dark Eldar. That's a great narrative. It's a kin war, and they're also still able to ally, which is a separate argument, and we should talk about that not right now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. you can still use them together. And I think that Space Marines versus Tau, like the Damocles Crusade, would have worked awesome. But you know what I mean? Like These are like really good rivals, though. Imperial Guard and Chaos. You can have the Renegade Militia. I know what you mean, really good rivals, but, like, a really good rival, too, to, in my mind, would have been, like, Eldar and Necrons. Eldar and Orcs kind of were actually on the same side. Orcs were created by the old ones, so were the Eldar to fight the Necrons. So it's like, if you want to start going down that path, I don't know if they really picked the best narrative. Like, you could have got gotten away no problem with allying uh, box sets. Like, a Vendetta versus a Heldrake would have been super cool. A Storm Talon versus a Tiger Shark or whatever the Sun Shark is um, would have been awesome. That would have been fine. Or maybe not. they're just trying to not encourage allies. I would be also okay with that. Yeah, like, I would. To be LA's totally kind of, honest. Allies kind of went up the deep end there. So I, I love them. This is on a completely different ramp, but I'm going to just uh, drop this here. I would love them to release a this is how you play tournament games and no allies in tournament games. I would love them to do that. Would I would actually really cool. almost use that as motivation to get back into 40k. It would just mean also that Eldar would be amazing. <laughs> but as a side the point. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but it, it, really good. all of a sudden it would allow for them to balance their codices again. Yeah, and it would also the one they'd have to, it's tough to do that. They would also then have to figure out like game and coming back to the Imperial Knight box set. Okay, so you want to play no allies, Imperial Knights have to play five knights. That's all there is to it. I feel like they could make some... Like whatever. Yeah, well, this is totally... Yeah. Let's maybe curtail that one there. But, but nonetheless, these box sets are, I think, they're just a slight miss. The fact that they could have had them ally. Otherwise, great. And I really want to play them. I actually would like to see this rule set for these uh, fighter games. Uh, and I'd love to play that. Aeronautica Imperialis, great game. Uh, I don't know if it's, the game's going to be anything like that, but they've shown in the past they can write flyer rules good dogfighting game it could be awesome it could be another avenue like you're talking about to pick up a tau daca jet and not you can play against my hemlock and like you know we'll roll some dice could be awesome wow. i'm gonna say i'm gonna go onto the rating side of things and i'm gonna give them a solid four for the new uh storm cloud attack and give the night box a five i would like to say my biggest beef which i think is no small issue on my part 
um, after like ranting and raving about how much I like these boxes, I really hate the fact that it's just repackaging old models. I get, I understand pragmatically why. And it's Sometimes easy. they come with a new decal sheet. Oh, okay, no. Also, let me finish before. No, no I'm let say, me finish what, here. What do you want them to release new models in a standalone game and let old models languish that are still really cool? It feels fucking lazy. <laughs> really? Yeah. When they're also still it coming does. out with new models at the same time. I'm, like the Sylvaneth? Like it's coming up that, at the same no, time. No, no, no. We're talking about that next week. Okay, well, I'm just that, saying. Just do not get me started on how amazing that is. I'm just saying they have that coming out at the same time. As, it's not like you can't have both. They're still releasing new models. They're just releasing new models for their marquee game system and then trying to push old product by giving you a, a benefit of saving money. And here's a game as well. <laughs> I just. It's not lazy, it's efficient. Yeah. It's not lazy at all. They're still writing new <laughs> rules. And doing new box covers. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that is a lot of art, actually. To push out that many high-quality pieces of art for boxes is actually not true. Are they just, like, fucking Photoshop pictures with, like, a, these ones a filter photos. for smoke? These ones are actual pieces of art. Yeah, or I think these are just, like, painted, yep. like, codex cover style art. Okay. Yep. I'll give them that much. So so that's, that's not They free. painted box art. Hey, you know what? Box art is something that's... They did not do box art for a long time. They were just taking pictures of the miniatures. Box art's kind of cool. Well, box art's what got me... Well, not entirely, because the first box I bought was the old Wood Elf Archers, and they were not... They did not have art. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing... The, I, can't, I cannot believe that I still play these fucking games, because the very first models I bought were maybe historically some of the worst of all time. So, but here, box art, okay, this is on another, we're so far off into tangent land right now, I love it, um, but the box art for 40k is so good, and then you have games, and the game might be great, and the models might be great, but one of the things that drives me insane about Malifaux is they have 3D renders. It's like, is this is this a Kickstarter that you guys haven't finished yet? On the back, it's fully painted art on the front. Uh, the old ones were, uh, had renders on the front, totally. No. Yeah, I don't no, think they have painted the, stuff on the, the front. front of every box is a fully painted. It's just a very different like every time I've looked at it. Looking, I've always remember seeing the renders. Maybe you just like looked at the back of the box Maybe and ignored the front that was fully colored and beautiful. Either way, I probably just saw them. Went this is silly. Put them away. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, but I, I think um, with that kind of complaint aside, I'd probably still give these a four. Yeah, because you, honestly, you're saving money and you're getting a way to play with models outside of collecting thousand dollar armies. Okay, you made it sound like it was going to be a big complaint. You're like, I know I just said all these great things, but I have a huge complaint. It pisses still, me off. Still before. It, it pisses <laughs> me off, but it's still. It pisses you off the same amount. It pisses me off that they weren't able to be allied in one box. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. Like it's so you're minimal, still saving money. You're still getting off. new rules, and one might even say you're not pissed off. You're just peeved. I'm, I'm a wee bit miffed. You're miffed. Okay. <laughs> 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 um, not having played the games, I'm not sure exactly how to review them on that front. I do like the fact that you're saving money. I do like the fact that, you know, they're using some creativity and just, it's not just the same old shit over again. Like, it's not just a stripped down version of 40k. Mm -hmm. And who knows, there's a chance that they might be trying out some random different mechanics that they could revisit later for other games. You never know. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, the, the fact that you're saving money and it's giving a little bit of excitement back and a small product, it's not a bad thing. I, I'd still probably struggle to give it more than a three without having played the games myself. But we got we do have to play the Imperial Knight one because I know you like Battletech and I know you like X-Wing and you would actually really like that. I do like location-based damage and... 
the location. Just, just not damage. having hundreds of points of armor is probably a good thing. So Dan, it's so simple. Each point has six points. You do six points of damage. It's gone. If you were Dead. to assume the game is remotely playable, would you be able to make this a four? I'd say so. So it's probably a four because I can almost guarantee you'll like that system. <laughs> like I know it has maneuver dials effectively and location-based damage, and it's not insane to keep so track yeah, of. If it's halfway between X-wing and BattleTech, how could you possibly go exactly? Around? Sorry, I do have. If we're rating the boxes separately, I would put the night one at a three. Really? Because I think we might have talked about this before. The, but it comes sh- with new decals. They needed to do a convergence brew for Chaos players. Yeah. But it shows yeah. you how to use clippers to cut the face off of one to make it the one that's well, like damaged. that. If you want to talk about lazy, that one's fucking lazy. I, I actually do admit <laughs> they should have had one single convergence brew. All they needed was one Chaosy shoulder pad, one Chaosy face, and Chaos looking weapons. And just a single chainsword with a spike on the end of it. And then, Bam. like, and then maybe a couple spikes to put on the top. Yeah. They could have, in all honesty, given put the Chaos Vehicle Sprue, that shitty one that's like 10 years old. <laughs> I like the weird gargoyle gun barrels. Yeah. Fuck! So if that even that. came in the box, yeah. sure. But they didn't even give you that. Okay, but every Chaos player has that sprue and is like, this sucks. <laughs> no, but they, they didn't even yeah, try. Oh, oop, that's me bumping everything. They didn't even try. I'm worried that something spilled. Oh, no, you just barely knocked this. Okay, we're good. Yeah, I'm not used to having... Um, the we're, table all, we're all completely screwed up right now because we don't have a, our two other hosts. So we're we're all normally short legged wards on the end. This is very tough, for and us. this is never a problem. Uh, yeah. No. Anyways, I'm super stoked about it. But I think it's your turn to continue ranting about something you're more excited about. Oh my god, lock and load. Yes. So this is also deja vu. This has happened like once a year. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's going to continue happening. Oh my god. Yep. Um, yep. If they keep paying you to go, you will go. Oh fuck. We'll get into that in a sec. But. <laughs> So here's the thing. Every time I get ready to go to lock and load, my enthusiasm for War Machine and anything Private 2 Press does is typically at an all-time low. Because I've had a year of, like, the excitement from lock and load kind of wearing off. Yeah. And then going back to the... Mark II was stale. Um, we, Me and some of the guys uh, that I was hanging out with started calling it Mark Poo. <laughs> okay. So um, you're a little down on it. I was a little down. Um, but... I've ranted before about how great Lock and Load is, so I won't get into too much detail about just, like, Iron Arena is the best thing in the world, uh, the people are amazing, obviously, uh, but this year specifically, some of the highlights, um, and as soon as I'm done moving, I should have some time to edit the video, but I got interviews with a bunch of the development team for Hobbit in Canada using our new video camera, that's so that awesome. stuff's going to be going up online relatively soon. Um, I got to hang out with people that I'd met the previous year and just... Um, kind of network even more with everyone. I did this really fun thing where we've got some new Hobby Night in Canada tokens that have been done up, and I took the 40 mil ones that are a good size for flags for uh, War Machine, and everyone that played against that had a painted army either gave them, gave them some dice or gave them some flags. That's pretty awesome. Their choice. So, and I gotta tell you, I played against Floyd Painted the entire weekend. See that? Without even trying. That shocks me. Without even trying, I, I played against Floyd Painted the entire weekend. I know, and, and not bad. It's. I think War Machine is getting better. I think they're getting much, much better for the community painting things. Like it used to be the game that no one painted anything, and there was no reason to even attempt painting stuff because you were guaranteed to play against plastic or black primer. Yeah. Now, uh, well, the company's probably, moving in that yeah. direction, right? Like there is a best painted award at every Steamroller now. Yep. 
that's pretty cool. That's different. And it's included in their kit. Like, they do that kind of stuff. Um, but the way they did the launch for Mark III was amazing. I hated it because I had to wait till Saturday night. But what you had to do was register and pay for all the stuff that you wanted by noon on the Saturday. Yep. And then they actually sent all that info to their warehouse that was down the road and packaged up a box for you. So after the keynote on the Saturday night, it was about like 8 or 9, you would then be paired off depending on what your order was on your receipt and go into these lines. And you would just hand them your receipt. They'd grab the box off the pile, double check all your shit was there, and you go off on your merry way. So, And they had probably about 10 or 12 of these lines set up. So it went from starting to wait in line to like squealing and grinning like a madman with a box full of toys, maybe 15 minutes. Yeah, the Americans are good at being consumers. They're very good at that sort of thing. But like it was weird because it was queuing very well. And I was like, I feel very Canadian right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that doesn't surprise me at all. Like, they're the ones that have the giant sporting events, that kind of stuff. Like, they're good at doing things on a large scale. Yeah, and, and it was is. fantastic. And I, I got to tell you, Mark Three, it feels like it's not dramatically different from Mark Two, but it's every time you sat down to play Mark Two, anything that pissed you off is gone or fixed. Really? The game is just better. It's... What was your favorite edition of 40K? Pro- That's going to sound cliche. This one, actually... And, and after that, probably third. Because there's the most variety since maybe second. It reminds me a lot of, like, the craziness that you could do in second and how much uh, just bizarre stuff there was, but not, but it's actually fast and playable versus, you know, third was too fast and playable. And then okay. third got watered down and got crappy and was really stale by fifth. So the, the thing about this is, like, pre-measuring's in the game now. So instead of, like, do, can I charge them, can I charge them? It sounds, that, like, you just fucking measure. If they're in range, you charge. Um, it sounds a lot like fifth, and it, fifth was pretty stale and pretty rough, and then it went to like sixth, seventh, forty uh, k. And then the other thing too is a lot of the bullshit combos went away. Oh, that didn't happen forty k. <laughs> <laughs> they just change in forty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. It, I'm sure within a year we're going to see some new bullshit combos, but they have committed to doing annual reviews of rules. Really? And if there are things that need to be errated and changed in any capacity, they will. And because oh. War Room is such a dynamic app that is that can be constantly and instantaneously updated for everyone, they'll do that. And they have also committed to changing cards. Oh, I like that. I like that. So the living rulebook idea is the greatest thing, and I'm surprised more companies haven't embraced it with the ability to push out documents electronically. Yeah. Like, it's surprising that it's, that it's still so paper-based. But Ironically, GW did that for specialist games, but it was more of an excuse to not have to make physical rule books anymore. Yeah, it was totally yeah. Just cheap. But yeah, no, I I like that. The fact that they're willing to do that and change rules and, and listen to the community is awesome. And then the other thing, uh, during the keynote, they did release um, a lot of information about the new uh, theme books coming out. And the way tiers used to work in the previous edition is it would depend on the caster that you took. Okay. Whereas now, it's a general theme. So if you love really? pirates, or you love dwarves, or you love Manowar, or you love trenchers from Signar, yeah, there's going to be a new book for any all of those themes, eventually. They're probably going to only launch with two or three per faction. But there's going to be a new book with new artwork, yeah. new hobby content for those. That's awesome. Potentially new models and rules. So it's not going to be restricted by your caster, but by the composition of the army. I love that. And so these are all going to be launching in December. 
And I could not be more excited. So you'll be able to take, like, Iron Mother with, instead of having just, like, oh, I can only take her in a carrier group, you can do Iron Mother maybe in, like, Clockwork Angels. Well, here's the biggest difference. Traditionally speaking, if you were doing kind of that two-list format for War Machine, yeah. and if one of them was a theme list, you couldn't take most of those models in the other one mm-hmm. because you need a different yes. lead, a different Warlock or Warcaster. Yeah. Whereas now, you can take the same basic army with a different Warlock or Warcaster and still have the theme benefits. That's awesome. Huh. Um, Big fan and of that. at first, I know a lot of people were like, ooh, they're going to be releasing books for this, so it's not going to be free. But then when they talked about everything that's going to be in it, and you know with Privateer Press, they price their books reasonably. Yeah. It's going to be like a $20 supplement. It's going to be like back in the day of the oh, Craft World Eldar book. Not even like that. It'll be 20 bucks and actually thick. You'll get something with content in it. Like, the $20 GW ones were... <laughs> yeah, no, they're going to be amazing. It's and, like a dollar a page. And yeah, yeah they've committed to new models and, and new uh, new unit entries for all of these as well. And it's, if it's even half as good as they're saying it's going to be, I think War Machine is going to go from a game that very much was a super competitive game for just those hardcores to a game for everyone. They're really pushing the more casual gameplay. One of their mantras is, your army, your way now. So they're advocating, they've loosened up on all of their conversion rules, they've, they're advocating, I was even talking to uh, Ed Borelli, cool. who's one of, the, one of the head guys there for um, art design, uh, and we're talking about the armies that he's working on, he's a huge advocate of very personalizing his armies so that uh, it's like unique it. from everyone else, and like they're it. trying to get that kind of atmosphere into the game. So I love it. So it is, I'm just super fanboying on War Machine right now, because it's taking it from the game that I thought it was supposed to be. Okay, now how did you think it was supposed to be a little more casual? Because like the initial, that's one of the things that did no, 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 a little bit. Not necessarily casual, but fluffy. The universe is actually great. If you read any of the any of the books, um, which and they're getting into actually doing novels now. I actually the characters in the game. I actually do want to read some of their their background because that's one of my complaints that I had for the longest time is there was none, and there are they have been working on it. I will give them. Well, it's been there for a long time. time now, man. Like every rule book that comes out has been advanced in the storyline, which is not going to happen anymore. Um, now it's going to all be through Skull Island Studios, okay. which is basically their uh, black library. So I don't remember there being a ton of fluff in the rule book because I read that whole thing for the background mostly because I didn't really give a shit about the rules, frankly. Um, and I didn't find a huge amount like compared Keeping to like, the 40K set. But the, every year they'd release a new book for War Machine and Hordes, and e- each one of those books, oh. there was dozens of pages of fluff. I didn't realize it was every single year. Yeah. Because uh, so I don't know if it was dozens. It might be like 12 to 20. But if you're well, getting no, one every it, year, that actually adds up quite a bit in an, in addition. Like, well, every faction would normally have about five or six pages of fluff yep. on top of the yep. general fluff, which is about five or six pages at the beginning and the end of the book. I guess I guess I was just being uh, maybe slightly spoiled by GW's a ridiculous amount of fluff. Like their rule But they don't release as many. hundreds of pages of fluff. Uh, like I don't even remember the third edition one. It was like 50 pages of rules and then how to collect an army and then another 100 pages of fluff. Like it was crazy. Yeah. And I, don't get me wrong, I was interested in the background. Like the, I only have experience with the convergence stuff, but the convergence background is how they split off from uh, and they're also one of the factions, They're one of the newest factions, except for the New Hordes faction, which we don't know exactly what it's going to be yet. But oh, they have cool. a weird, creepy, like Blair Witch looking trailer video. Yeah, Ooh, which looked cool. real cool. That could be really neat. Yeah, no, I, I have to say that's actually one of the things I'm more excited about. And while I've always advocated that 40K could use a little bit of a competitive boost and a little less, do whatever you want, beer and pretzels. Like, just, you don't have to do that all the time. 
but like a little bit more of a strict here's how you play competitively framework like a steamroller kind of yes and what the itc has provided i thought the 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 converse was always true for for war machine where they needed a little less of that and a little more here's how you get into the game without getting your face stomped because the people that i always knew getting into war machine were people from other game systems that wanted a more competitive tight rule set. And that's not always what you want to play. And I don't mind having those games, but it's very tough to learn and get into a system. Yeah, the learning curve for War Machine was always really tough. And you knew you were going to get shit kicked. You were rarely going to play somebody that's at your level for the first, like, six months. Unless you were doing one of those, like, brand new player, like, journeyman leagues or something. Or if you get into the game right now. Yeah, that's true. Which is a good time. Again, like, I don't know if brand new players are still going to be on the same footing as someone who's been playing War Machine for five years. They're, they're, they're learning It'll be reset but a little. The, but the disparity is going to be far less. Yeah, it's less yeah. than it was six months ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I I could rant for even more on this new edition, but I'll, I'll cap it there, save it for another day after we yeah, get some I games like in. To play. It's awesome. I'd like to play. And the cards sure. will be available uh, tomorrow. Really? Yeah. I, yeah, I think Roy was Roy had his giant pallet full of product arrives the other day, and so it'll be arriving in stores pretty much immediately, if not already. Well, maybe I'll have to paint up some of my convergence, finish up the battle engines, and my colossal. Yeah, I can actually play a few games. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, uh, other than that, lock and load. We uh, a bunch of us have started a grassroots movement for War Machine called the Hardcore Casuals. Where we try to one up each other on like what's more hardcore casual for playing War Machine, and it's it's devolved into like photos of us drinking beer and playing War Machine in garages, or like, <laughs> what do you think this combo would be great? I don't know, never tried it before. We'll just fucking do it anyways. Like it's just embracing the game for being just fun and finding different ways to have fun playing War Machine. Yes. And yes, the number of people that were just completely super balls deep into that was staggering. And the single best part about this is that when the Facebook group was created, um, <laughs> Ryan, the guy, one of the guys from Portland who, uh, I think he actually listens to our podcast. So hi Ryan. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was very strange. He, that was like, messed, like a hi mom moment. Yeah. Hi mom. He missed, he messed up in typing out uh, war machine hordes, uh, hardcore casual. And he, typed it out as warm whores hardcore casual <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> so that's a slightly different message yeah, yeah. Very different it was it better was, than cold but i'll leave it at that yeah uh, so kind of wrapping up talking about that i do want to talk a little bit about the painting competition because <laughs> we can just leave that one right there yeah oh yeah yeah uh, so i took down a gobber chef uh, which I don't know if I actually committed to saying on the podcast exactly what it was. It was a secret. It was a secret, and then you posted pictures of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's all been a little bit, like, this is way later than everything that was going on. But but uh, you took down a gobber chef. Yeah. And my goal from, like, last year I got uh, bronze for, for single fig and silver for, lar- for large. And this year my goal was to, like, commit to doing more of a competition piece. Yeah. And so I just took down the single fig because that typically is the category with the stiffest competition. Yep. And I just wanted to like get the silver, show some improvement, and have a good time. And you failed miserably. I failed miserably. Yes, you did not. In like the most glorious fashion because I didn't get silver, but I got gold. I got a gold coin. Um, and then it was so weird. I walked up to the cabinet. I saw my gobber chef beside a Chromac, which is like a big, gnarly uh, circle war- warlock. Um, and they were both beside a gold coin, and there was the the, ca- the best in category trophy behind it. 
And so I walk up. I'm like, here's my ticket. I want to pick up my Gobber Chef. And he's like, oh, okay, you got to fill out this form. He's like, what, what the fuck is this form for? Uh, for prize money. That's pretty awesome. So I'm like freaking out at this point because he's beside a gold. And then all of a sudden they're like, and you want? I'm like, why Why do I need to fill this out? Oh, because you, cause you won. I'm like, what did I win? Like, best in category. That's so, pretty awesome. Dude. So it was honestly, it was ridiculous because... Uh, I remember back when I did the de- the demons and it was like oh seven or something we went down oh eight yeah that was two thousand nine sure whenever it was that we went to the Toronto for Games Day and like looking at the category um, of forty k large I'm like I could see this being a thing uh, I remember looking at the model uh, in the cabinet and there was like a little part of my brain that was like okay like I think it could do this but the style was really different between my Gobber Chef and a lot of the other models in the cabinet. So it all kind of depends on, and honestly, if you're ever entering a painting competition, you have to realize that style matters. Oh, yeah. And some judges are going to love a certain style and some judges are going to hate it. Yeah. That so typical, like, do you like John Blanche's style or do you like a clean, crisp paint job? Yeah. So <laughs> you need to, and it's not to say that I didn't have a clean paint job on the model. Um, but it wasn't as dramatically highlighted as some of the other ones out there. It was less War Machine-esque. War Machine's paint schemes I've always found have been a lot more, uh, a lot more clean. Like they kind of remind me in some ways of like Second Night 40K. A little brighter, a little bit crisp. There's not a lot of them that have battle damage anymore or that kind of thing. I think yours was a lot more worn and lived in. Yeah. And so I'm looking at it and like in my head, I was like, oh, okay, like maybe. And some of the people that I was hanging out with are like, man, you like actually have a shot at this. I'm like, ah, like, fuck you guys, you're just saying shit. And it turned out that the model actually won the uh, the Grandmaster Trophy as well, which is their equivalent of a Slayer Sword. Yeah, which is Which awesome. was one of the most surreal moments of my life. I got to just, like, it was amazing. Because kind of growing up, um, especially locally, we've had tons of great painters. Yeah. Um, but nobody, just, we never had a competition to really get out and practice for Slayer Swords. Slayer Swords yeah, were always that sort of like, like that. that unicorn that people were after, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's yeah. just not going to happen locally. And, like, there's the pockets of, like, this guy's got seven demons, that guy's got eight demons locally, or whatever else. There's, yeah. like, me with my one. I'm like, yeah! But, yeah, the guys that but, had, like, the eight demons would have, like, a couple golds, but never won, like, a best in show. Maybe it featured in a white dwarf, and they were, like, next level kind of. Yeah. Painters. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. And just, it's like just being able to do that, it was really cool. And we always assumed we weren't a painting mecca. Like, do you know what I mean? And I, I want to like do a shout-out to Steve Hall. Because um, he cleaned up pretty effectively as well. Because I entered the one category. He entered four categories. And the only category that he didn't get best in category in was the one that I won. <laughs> so the only categories that we did not take the trophy in were diorama and this year they had a huge based one so last year they just had single fig unit and large this year they had single fig unit large battle group was separate from unit they also had huge base and diorama so there was way more options for uh, so would, for would battle group be like almost more like an army no battle group would be a, a warlock or warcaster plus uh, at least two beasts or warjacks gotcha um and so their version of armies on parade because armies on no parade. They, they had that separately because the this year which was the last year of doing it this way um hardcore is the only um format or was in the previous edition of the game that had a best painted yeah no prize. armies on and parade so they, don't aren't a tournament no I, I know yeah. but like that is for a whole army battle group is like three to five models so it's not really oh, okay. on parade, gotcha, gotcha. right um so their closest thing to they have for armies on parade would be the best 
the best painted for hardcore. Yeah. Um, but they did different categories, and like seriously, the two of us Alberta boys took home five of a possible seven trophies. That's pretty awesome. So, like, great job to Steve. And the other reason I didn't want to talk about my model was as part of the miniature swap happening in Alberta, I actually had in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to see Steve while I'm down there. I actually had Steve as the recipient for a model for the model swap. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do this model up to the best of my ability. I don't want to have to do this twice in one month. And so that was my model to give to Steve uh, as well, which uh, he was like, what I get to leave with all these trophies and the Grandmaster model? It's like super happy about it too, which was a great moment. And uh, the other really fun thing too is when I was talking with the uh, a bunch of the the de- the development team that were checking out the the best painted stuff uh, at the at the, kind of the end of the con. Uh, one of the guys there, who's one of the head writers for the company, um, was like, "Why'd you choose a gobber?" And I'm like, "Cause I fucking love gobbers." i wish there was more of them in the game like if you guys had a gobber faction i would be playing them like this and he's like oh really like (laughs) tell me more and i'm like yeah like can you imagine like an army that had scrapjacks and a bunch of bodgers and all sort of crazy mechanics and shit it'd be amazing he's like that'd be really cool so So next month, shut up and take my money. Oh, God. If they did that, I would buy all of them. I would actually, like, pay them money to let me paint the studio army of it. Yeah, like, sorry, grim fairy tale weird guys that you're teasing. It's time to do a gobber army. But it was it was really cool kind of talking about him because I guess some of his favorite models are the gobbers. And in all honesty, I think one of the things that stood out about the model that I took down was it was one of the, the simpler models there. And this is going to be our segue into the next topic here, which is how to approach kind of choosing your model for a painting competition. And I want to just give a bit of a rundown on my thought process, and then we can kind of get into some discussion if that's cool with you guys. Yep, sure. So You're apparently the master, so we can't argue with you anymore. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) Grandmaster. So for me, what it came down to was a model that I not only thought was well sculpted, but had like, but really loved, you know, where there's the, the... it doesn't matter what the model is. There's going to be some that just really appeal to you. Certain um, characteristics. I've thought that the face on the Gobber Chef was really emotional. Like there was a lot of detail there that just kind of you could look at it. And you can kind of see the emotion of what the Gobber is going through. Like fuck again. Like he's just cooking all this shit for an entire army. Just kind of like trudging, like trudging through the shit, doing all that. And so the model to me automatically kind of had this built-in narrative. Yeah, And so I didn't choose the craziest sculpted model that would highlight some bullshit technique. I chose the model that I felt some kind of a connection to and that I felt I could really represent the feel or the vibe of that model. Yeah. Especially with the kind of style that I was trying to work on for my own painting at the time. Because gotcha. uh, I wanted it to be a little bit more of that realistic looking paint job. Uh, a little bit like more muted tones, but still like a little bit of vibrancy in the flesh. Without going complete like fucking watermelon orcs overboard, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying really hard to do a lot of that reverse shading or inverse color, whatever the fuck you want to call it, shading. So yeah, like shading the greens with the browns and the reds and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. More so the reds, getting some blues, shading over the browns, like these kinds of things, and uh, and it worked. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what, so on that point, the one of the things that I would say is is bring a model that is going to stand out. 
like War Machine's known for its jacks and its pretty crazy casters and big shoulder pads, and you, that model has really none of that. It's a very unassuming, very simple model, but at the same time, you're right, it has a lot more like death when you look at it. Like at the end of the day, it's just a goblin holding a pot, effectively. Well, no, he's holding a fork and a knife with a pot in his back. Yeah, it, he's got. He doesn't have a lot going on. Like that's that's one of the charms of him, though. You know, like I think same thing for some of the space marine models you see. You can have all the war gear in the world, but some of the simpler stuff is just a guy in power armor, well done weapon, nicely sculpted cape. But I think one of the traps a lot of people will will kind of get into is they'll look for all of these details, yeah, and they'll choose an overly busy model, and yeah. all of a sudden balancing that paint scheme is really complicated. That being said, if that's the model that you love, do that. Because if you love a model that you're painting, yeah, it'll show. it shows way more than if yeah. you're painting something tactically. So yeah. I, I don't think I, – I, I've heard a lot of people talk about choosing painting competition models tactically of like choose only character units, choose only um, like really super detailed or like no, but you're right. the, the more thing, standout. The only like, thing that matters is choosing a model that you really, really do like. If you don't like the model, it's going to look like crap. That's all that matters. That's it. If I mean, there's some things that you can do once you you have a faction maybe that you like, and there's a bunch of models that you're choosing from that all of them you'd be really excited to paint. You're going to paint anyways. If you are at that point in time, once you've got that sort of, I guess, the general choice that you can choose from, then you can narrow it down for certain other features that might be put it over and above the other models. That makes sense. Yeah, and you also the other thing that I like to say here is. Choose a model that plays to your strengths if you want to do it tactically. If you are great at freehand, choose a model that you can show that. If you yep. if you are more skilled at uh, doing flesh tones and a little bit of weathering or blood or like these extra kind of details, yep. choose a model with more space for that and not maybe necessarily one of the big flag that you need to freehand everything on. Yep, couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, busy models I think are always a problem. Uh, I think... In general, you should stay away from them. If the model's got too much going on, you can't put the time and effort into the correct larger areas that are going to be what draws. The average person's going to see different things in a model, right? Like you're going to you're going to go between people and they're going to just get different details out of what they're looking at. If you have something that's a little simpler, each feature that may attract their eye, you can put more time into. Versus if somebody you know is really thinks the fur is really cool in the model or something, right? Like the uh, he's got a fur cloak. And you didn't put a lot of time into that because that's not what you thought was going to attract, you know, the, uh, the attention. Instead, you put a bunch of time into the gold filigree, which you think is amazing, but no one notices it. You know, you're, you're missing out. You're putting a lot of Although, effort in and it's not going to pay off. I think I would say uh, the judges at most of these at most of these events are going to notice everything because talking with them, they are mean and brutal to every model they look at. Because they need to find a clear winner, and it's it's not it's so much easier. That's because they're in a lot of cases as well. Like they know what they're doing. They know what they're they know what they're looking at. They're not going to fall for any of the obvious tricks or traps. Like they're going to analyze it. They're going to be meticulous. They're going to look for what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses. Like they're going to be very yeah, just very thorough, very methodical, and very critical. And it's way it's easier. To literally, s- their job. And it's easier to select a winner if you're basically selecting. And this sounds bad, but like the least shitty model is easier to find <laughs> than the best model. So I, I still kind of disagree with that a little bit. I think that even the judges, when they they are good painters and they do know what's going on, they still have so many personal biases. 
and for they, sure. they will see things differently. And at that, at that top level, a lot of times it comes down to what the judges are looking for. And if you guess wrong, you might just not get it. Yep. And that's why I did have that caveat at the beginning, right? Of yep. if you're entering, recognize that it does come down to the judges. There's and a little bit of luck at the draw, no matter what you do. Yep. yep. Um, now that being said, I do think that your choice of the the gobbo is brilliant. I absolutely think that that is, like I said, it's the antithesis of what more machine is. And a lot of times, people like fads start because they're different. Uh, fashion starts because it's different. It stands out. It's noticeable. Uh, and yeah, if you had done up a jack for I don't know, a Signar, I don't think you would have gone nearly as far. Even if you had a great paint style with it, I think that's the thing that sort of went. You know, it's just small, it's unassuming, but it rewards you for looking at the model. And that's that's kind of the thing where, like, you can paint up uh, a Wraith Knight, like this one, and I don't think it would do as well because it's in your face and it's got too much detail. It's cool and I like it, and I don't think I would put the same effort into the Gabo because it's not my style. Um, and I would probably do quite a bit poorer with it. So this is what, this is what I like, this is what I paint, but I don't think it would ever do as well because of the model and what it is. Now, that's why they have categories, too, right? So you don't have to compete against something that's completely different to a certain extent. But even within that category, I think like a well-painted Carnifex, something that has a little more a little more unassuming, if that makes sense, because it's a little bit smoother, it's not got as many details, it's more organic, might do better. Well, and I think, honestly, a Carnifex has a... F- Here's the biggest difference. A Carnifex has a face. Yes. Right? Whereas a Wraith, a Wraith Knight doesn't. Yeah, and it, it, a face is the focal point of any miniature. So if you're going to pick a, a painting contest miniature, it probably should have a bare face. Yep, and not necessarily just like a constipated guy standing on top of a on top of a rock screaming while trying to take a shit. Like all those models that they kind of look like to me. <laughs> but, uh, space Marine captains. Yeah, space Marine standing <laughs> on top of a giant rock trying to take a shit. Yeah. Um, so those really different, really expressive faces, and like that Gobber Chef, where he just looks miserable and frustrated and fed up. Like, it fits. It oozes the character. It's not oozing anything else. Um, well, there was a bit of gooey bits on that model. True, he did have some spatter zones, but uh, no, it's the, the having an expressive face that you can really do a lot of work with is definitely half the battle. Mm-hmm. Painting somebody with a helmet on is always going to be more of a challenge because you don't have that automatic focal point like helmets are often easier but lacking the face it it does does make it a lot harder to really draw somebody's attention to that same extent yeah and then the other thing that uh just a general tip um i was going back and doing some touch-ups because i was talking with dan about uh he was giving me some great tips on doing some black lining on the backpack a little more definition this that and the other and they reached a certain point where like I had done enough work and I just had to put the model down, call it done and walk away. Um, you can over embellish. It's really easy to over embellish. And the other thing too, is if you are doing a smaller model, like what you were working on and you spend a lot of time on the face, paint does get thick, even when you're doing thin layers and it gets sometimes difficult to undo something. Once you're like, I'm pretty sure this is good, but I'm just going to add that next little piece that I think is right. I had this happens to me on eyes all the time. I'm working on eyes and doing that kind of stuff. And then I'm like, nah, I shouldn't have done that. That's a mistake. Now it doesn't look right. I know I can't go back over and add more paint to fix it because I'm going to build that up too much. Like I, I actually think- did fix the eyes on the guy. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them. His, his left eye was always perfect, but the right eye was like a little bit off. And I'm looking at him like, I just, I just can't enter him like this. So I went back and fixed the eye. <laughs> that's that's that gutsy. Out. 
That, in my opinion, is actually really gutsy to go back and fix eyes. Although... I think I'm of, I'm of the opinion you really get one shot at eyes. But I gotta tell you this. One of the biggest pieces of feedback I've got on that model was how characterful the eyes were. That's good. So, obviously, <laughs> fixing that out. eye was a good idea. Clearly worked out. Yeah, idea. No. <laughs> Lame. <laughs> yeah, that was terrible. Um, now, so we've kind of talked a little bit about choosing models that are good for you. Are there any other things that you guys would maybe recommend when thinking about maybe not choosing models, but maybe choosing categories? Um, well, choosing categories, I think half of it is finding something that, again, plays to your strengths a little bit, but it's something that you can realistically complete given the time frame. Like, if you're an excruciatingly slow painter, maybe don't try to paint a battle group. Yeah, or a or Titan or something. if you're really good at, again, faces and characters and details, maybe don't paint a Colossal. Like, a lot of it is just playing to your strengths and something that you would want to have and that even if you don't win, you'll still enjoy having in your collection. So if you're painting something just for the sake of trying to win a trophy and it doesn't win, then it's just going to be sitting there and be a waste of time and money on your shelf. Yep. And I think that's really a big thing for me is I went down not planning on winning, but just planning on um, trying to improve a little bit. So what I did is I took a lot of the techniques that I knew and was comfortable with and applied those but then kind of pushed myself a little bit in certain ways of trying to get the weathering a little bit more reasonable, trying to get the flesh a little bit more smooth, trying to get the focal point more on the face and kind of highlight the whole model towards that point um, to try and have it very directional. So I didn't really change my techniques a lot other than maybe a little bit more attention to detail, but I tried conceptually to kind of shore it up a little bit. And I think that's a... A really good way to play to your strengths, but try to push yourself within those strengths a little bit if you can. And I think you raised another good point, too. Anytime you're doing competition pieces, you can't really just throw shit together and expect it to work. Composition pieces, the the thought process, the composition, the way the model is arranged on the base, the way the color scheme is applied to the model to, you know, kind of casually or subconsciously draw the eye in certain directions... All those little things that don't happen by accident, they mean a lot more when you have that really hypercritical um, judgment going on. You need to put that extra thought in. So I think if you are doing a painting competition piece, you do have to pay a little bit more attention to the scheme, a little bit more attention to the composition. And that thought process will really show through in the end. And in a lot of time, it's, yeah, those decisions you don't make are those things that you choose not to do that will make all the difference. Like oh, I could add this random freehand, but it would draw attention away from the focal points of the model. Yeah, like, totally. Yeah, the I think there's there's a lot more emphasis on the thought process and the reasoning behind what you're doing on the model. It's not just about the result and the individual brush strokes. You don't need to do freehand. I honestly think that everybody, you know, you you got to do a competition piece. It has to have freehand on it. Like, yeah. that's just a check mark that needs to be done. the no. judges are sophisticated enough that they're not using a, a checklist like that. Yeah if, you're, yeah, if you're painting in a tournament that has... A marking category like a rubric where like are all the eyes painted or all the faces painted do you have at least one major conversion if you're literally painting to a rubric that's one thing but judges at that level um they're going to be thinking outside the box they're going to be analytical they're they're not being that simplistic so i couldn't agree more yeah like uh yeah but also if you have if you are painting to a rubric stop don't paint to a rubric. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun to me. No, paint something that you're going to, like, it comes back to paint something you're going to enjoy. And if you are literally just checking off, like, oh, I need to have freehand, I need to have non-metallic metal, don't do that. It's going to look dumb. And and the other thing, too, is kind of the original point I, I was getting at as well. Paint for you. 
Yep. Don't paint for the judges. Try and find ways to push yourself. And you know what? I got lucky. I won a competition. That was sweet. I just kind of the right model at the right time. Yep. Yeah, like what, what I was trying to get at is never not, have not the to expectation. take away from, from what you were painting at all, but at that level, most guys are very similar in terms of guys and gals are very similar in terms of their technical ability. I doubt that you were heads and shoulders above uh, the rest of your competition. Like no. maybe, no, maybe nowhere you were near. in that piece, but all in all, if you were given the same piece as somebody else, you might do a worse job than somebody that did poorer in the competition. Yeah. Because everybody has those technical skills at that point, and it's how they put the model together and put the techniques to use. And once you have practiced with a particular range and you've got something you like, you're going to do well. It's just That's all there is to it. Some people are good at painting Skaven, good at painting Orcs, that sort of that sort of stuff. Some people are good at painting clean surfaces. And if you're one or the other, it's really tough to transition, I find, between those two styles. And that makes it hard to try and pick something strictly for a painting competition. Like, this is going to be against the meta. Like, you know, you talk always with tournaments and you have a meta buster. Don't do that with painting competition. Like, unless you are, that is your your strong point, right? You know what yeah. I'm saying? And and again, like bringing it back, it's all about you and and, and pushing yourself. And you'll yeah. always get you, not always, but at least at Lock and Load, I found you always get really good feedback from the judges of ways that you can improve. They even had really good feedback for me on my model too. Like it wasn't perfect by any stretch of imagination. So there's ways that I can improve, and it's it's all about having this very intrinsic motivation for painting because if you place all your value on what the judges are saying and what they're thinking, you're never going to be satisfied. Like for me, Mm -hmm. had I walked away with a silver coin at that, at that competition, I would have been tickled pink. I would have been super happy. Turned out it was way more. That was phenomenal. But, but that's the thing too, is the judges expectations, the judges, their advice is correct because that's what they're looking for. doesn't mean you have to agree with it. Like if yep. it's not your style, you you know you might you might be able to take it back to the painting competition the next year with different judges, and you you do completely different results. Yeah, uh, it's a big thing to remember is just because you didn't get what you wanted doesn't mean that the piece sucks. It just might mean that it wasn't to that person's taste. Yeah, and that's that's kind of another thing to remember too. I guess specifically about some of these painting competitions that are tied to one brand. Yeah. So like the Golden Demon um, for Games Workshop or. Um, the Grandmaster competition, whatever, through Privateer Press, you're still you're still playing in their sandbox, right? Like it's their universe, it's their art, it's it's yeah. their overall like character and background and feel. So you could have the best painted Hello Kitty Marine ever. It's never gonna win a Golden Demon because it's not representative of the 40k universe. Like yeah. that's that is one of the like guiding principles of the competition as well, is it needs to be something that fits in the universe yeah so it like, needs to look lived in and, and that's one of the things that your model did is it looked yeah. used and it looks like it fit within that that realm like if you had that apron that was perfectly white and clean wouldn't have made no sense like it looked used and it looked and if it had proper. been like super caked in gore it would have not looked proper either yeah because he's a chef <laughs> like, he's yeah. not a corn berserker yeah like it's it's you got to get the right right place in time as well as the, the universe you're paying for. Yeah, I think the way the way I kind of describe it is, and it, for me it kind of ties into a little bit of like kind of my personal, not necessarily right or wrong, but like my personal definitions for what makes something art versus like technique and skill only. Yeah, and a lot of numbers it, versus art. And a lot of it for me is very much like kind of the heart and soul issue of it where 
like when I was when I was painting some of the earlier competition pieces where I was trying to game the system and win, there wasn't any heart and soul going into it. So they looked kind of generic. They didn't have personal style. They didn't have all these artistic elements to it where some of my more successful pieces um, were a lot of the ones that I really did like have a lot of personal interest, a lot of, um, like I said, just heart and soul trying to get into like, what would this model look like? What would his style be? What, like when I did the scrap prospector, like, which I think honestly is my favorite model you've ever painted. Yeah. I think it's still probably like in a lot of ways, the best model I've ever painted. And a lot of it was cause I was again, just making those conscious decisions of if this guy's trudging through the wastelands, looking for literally any piece of scrap that he can bring back for barter or trade or bribe his mech in his community or whatever. Um, like he's not going to be super glamorous. He's not going to be covered in like, you know, crazy tattoos and free hands and all the rest of it. Like he was this dirty shitty guy with like his, his shoes falling apart and like he's got toes sticking out the side and everything. Like a lot of it was just really getting into the spirit, like the heart and soul of the model and again, that that passion and that interest, it does go a long way. It makes the model look like a living, breathing part of the universe. Yeah. And I think that is one of the, if not expressly stated, it is one of the, um, I think in a lot of cases, one of the categories that the judges are going to be looking for. So just doing your game the system, paint by numbers, check your boxes, that sort of a thing, yeah. you're going to miss that heart and soul element, yeah. which is what elevates something from being technically skillful to being artistic in a lot of ways for me. Yeah. And this really ties into the the biggest piece of feedback I got last year was because I entered just uh, pieces that were in my army. And I got I got coins, so it was great, but they said, come back with a competition piece next year. Yeah. So I came back this year with a competition piece. And well that's the thing too. Well, there's one sorry, there's boss. one more thing to finish off the story. Sure. Um, and at the end of this year um, the judge, who actually is the guy that won the Grandmaster last year, started working for the company like a week later as one of their painters. Huh. Um, but he he came up to me after he handed me the trophy at the end of the at the end of the convention, and was like, "All right, so obviously you've got the chops and the skill and the eye and the brain for it. I'm going to challenge you to come back next year and don't bring back a model, bring back a piece of art." Which and that's I think, you got the eye and the brain. You, you're working on the heart. Yeah. Well, I. Yeah. But like, it was little things, even like taking the model off Sounds of a like gaming a Rocky base. Montage. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But like taking the model off a gaming base and putting it on some kind of a more like scenic, like scenic plinth kind of style uh, setting, like where you're you're making it more about this holistic art piece instead of just this could be a gaming piece. Now, which I don't necessarily fully agree with. I don't agree with that at all. But I, I'm a, so a lot of competition painters are big into the basing. And I, uh, basing is a weird one for me because I, just because you put it on a piece of wood, like a plinth and then had a crazy base on it doesn't mean that that's just over and above no, any and it, other it's, base style. But it's not, I, th- I think for them, the mentality, at least for him, having talked to him about it, it wasn't about like whether, how detailed the base was. It was kind of making that separation from a gaming piece into Framing something it. else. So it's being framed differently. Yeah. Cause I think it's in you're kind of extending that concept of if you're trying to create like a living, breathing model that looks like it's part of its universe, when you're doing a little bit more of a scenic base, not like a full on diorama necessarily, but you're actually getting into that, like building the universe around him a little bit and how he fits into it and interacts with it. But he doesn't need a wood plinth to do that. Not necessarily. That's the thing that bothers me is every single, uh, like bust bust makes sense because a bust is strictly framed already, but an actual model, the whole thing, 
I, I actually do not like any model that's on an actual plinth. I have a huge problem with it because I think what one of the things that they're doing is they're raising it up in height so it's visually more impressive. I think for and me that is that isn't helping the thing. Like just put it on a wooden little tiny uh, plant that doesn't have to be tall. No, and that's honestly what I'm going to do because I think the tall ones are stupid as well. But I think the okay. biggest difference is being able to choose the boundaries of the model. Sure, and that's fine. And I think I think that for me, so you can so you're saying framing the model. Yeah. In a way that is meaningful to the piece instead of meaningful to the game system. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. Is, yeah. is one of those kind of... So that that's kind of like the progression that I'm, I'm going to be looking at of seeing like how can I frame the next piece I work on, which... Oh, God, I didn't even know what I'm going to do. That was the model that I really wanted to do, so i got to figure something else. That's, that's, I guess the last thing I'm going to say on it is I think that when you start doing a plinth and a larger base, you start running into, well, are you really painting that single figure or are you actually painting a diorama? And honestly, for me, that's going to be a fine line to walk because I want to make sure it's still a single fig and not a diorama. My goal is to have it be not much larger of a surface than the game base would have been. Because even if it's like a 50 mil surface plinth instead of like a 30 mil base, you still have a lot more surface area to work with. Yeah, and you can do cooler stuff. You can do fallen logs and, you know, actual... You get, you get more to work with, for sure. But that is one of the challenges of doing a single fig. And that's one of the things that kind of bothers me is when they go all out on the base. because I will point it out. Diorama territory. The model that I beat out was on a plinth. That's good. Did I'll, have a bigger base. That's good. Did have the more detailed base, but didn't have quite the same character. And, and, so, so, and one of the things about the base, too, that's a bit of a trap is, again, when you get to that really high level where any mistake can sink you, if you're having to paint that base with the same level of thoughtfulness and skill as the model itself, like it's, it is really challenging. Like you're not just slapping a bigger base on and dry brushing it a couple of shades of gray and calling it done. Like you're still, if you're painting and sculpting and making that base to that same level and just trying to really make it seem alive in the universe. Yeah. Like it's, I don't know. It's, I think it's a good challenge. It is going to help you raise your game a little bit more and in new and different ways. Yeah. And doing it kind of tastefully and within, again, the realm of the universe, not just doing grandiose shit for the sake of grandiose shit. That's the challenge. Yeah. 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 Like I said, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's kind of the case, I think, with basing. It, it's, it's easy to go overboard. Yeah. yeah it's tough. very easy to go overboard. So to summarize for me for all of this is do what you love and only hold yourself accountable to yourself. And yeah. if you do that, whether or not you have success and the competition, you're going to be happy with the end result personally. Yeah. yeah. And that's absolutely for me, the biggest thing. I don't know if you guys have any closing remarks on this one. No, that's, that's correct. One of the things that I fall into is I, uh, get a little frustrated when I don't do as well as I think I should. And then that can be a motivator. It can be a motivator. You can come back to what you've been painting and working on and put some effort in and buckle down. Uh, but it is tough to stay positive while you're painting when it, when that happens to you. So you have to kind of not expect to do well. And that's that's half the point of like paint something that's fun, paint something that's interesting. Yeah. If you're really into it, you're not going to be fighting that frustration the whole way. Yeah. Like if you're doing it for the love of the model and then you happen to enter it into a competition, that's exactly right. Yeah, 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 that, yeah. It's going to make the motivation a lot easier to keep up. And the other thing, take your time. A lot of these competition pace, pieces take years. Like, actually a year of effort. Or like 10 to 12 hours. Oh, depending on the size. <laughs> that's, that's the other advantage of painting a tiny little fucker. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, if you do that, uh, and you do a small fig, yeah, you can spend a lot less time. But you still spend 12 hours on a single fig. Like, that's a lot for a tiny little goblin. Because I'm trying to think yeah, of the I'm comparison. I can't remember the name of the painter, but I'm sure you guys might remember the... I think it was called, like, Magmatrax, like the big... 
It was like a corn lord on a juggernaut on like a big lava base that went a slayer sword yeah, a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. That guy painted that literally over more than a year. I think it was something like 400 hours Wasn't of Wasn't that like the guy's first model ever and he just kept working with it and playing with it and he, working with it? Yeah, he said that because I think he had artistic experience in other mediums as well. Yeah. But that was the first model he started working on and the entire way along he would like work on some pieces, improve them, go paint some other models, come back to this piece, finish it up. Like, he did paint, I think, a gaming army on the side while working on that model, but that was his first, like, real project, first model that he started, and he just kept refining it, kept throwing that ridiculous attention to detail and, you know, artistic endeavor into it, and it became the Slayer Sword winning monstrosity. Yep. Which is definitely an outlier in a lot of ways, but not the least of which being the fact that it was hundreds of hours of labor onto a single model over the course of like 14 months or something. Yep. No, for sure. I, I think the uh, uh, the time frames are something that can really sneak up on you. Like if you're... Yeah, plan accordingly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Okay, so uh, if you guys have any questions, feel free to send us messages on Facebook. I do have one thing. The model that I was trying to think of at the beginning is uh, the drone sniper sculpted by Mike Jensen. Take a look at that. That Okay. Full circle from way back. Sounds good. All right. So as far as upcoming events, on July 16th, we've got Advanced Painting Techniques at Imaginary Wars. Uh, This is a one-day event. Uh, Is it Dallas that's running this one? Don't know. If if Dallas isn't the one running it, uh, he'll at least know more information, so you can check it out on Facebook. Uh, July 16th to 17th is also King of the North, which is a steamroller up in Grand Prairie. It says 50 points, uh, three-man, uh, and a 50-point three-man team event, as well as steamroller. Those points might have changed due to Mark III, so I'm guessing they're probably 75 points, which is the new standard for uh, Mark III. Uh, the Wet Coast GT is happening in Burnaby. Uh, that's going to be, as far as I know, almost every system on the planet. Like, you know, Kings of War, yep. X-Wing, Malifaux, War Machine... You name it, they probably have it, so check it out. Uh, they're a bunch of great people. Yeah, Ward's going to that one, right? I no, think he went last year, he's not doing this oh, year. Okay. I was going to go, but I'm on call that weekend. Shows you so. how much I pay attention when Ward's yeah. talking at the end of every episode. No, Fair enough. Sure, not this year. Um, As I'm currently browsing on my phone for that model that Steve was talking about. <laughs> I, I'll show you. July 23rd, 24th is Warhammered, a 125-point pool, following the SCGT format for Age of Sigmar. Um, August 5th and 6th is Sorcerers and Six Shooters in Edmonton. This is a 50 Soulstones Gaining Grounds tournament. Apparently there's 16 spots uh, being put on by the guys out of the basement. Uh, so you can contact Chris Fedor on Facebook for more information on that one or see one of the dozens of posts he's put on every gaming group. <laughs> um, August 5th and 6th, slightly warmer than Carbonite, happening in the Wellington Park Community Hall, is like a 300-point beer affinity on Saturday for 20... 20- I'm guessing that's an Infinity event? Uh, yep, which is very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Star yes. Wars reference Infinity event. Woo. We talked about that last time. Is And Wellington, is that in Edmonton? Uh, I believe so. Wellington Community League. Okay, uh, so. so check those guys out. Uh, August 27th to 28th uh, in Winnipeg is the Planes of War GT. It's a 40k ITC event. Met those guys down at the LBO. They're really pushing it. They, uh, they should do a pretty good job. Awesome. So September 9th, 10th, and 11th is Attack X in Kamloops. I'm strongly considering going. Really? War Machine and Malifaux? Interesting. Okay. That's your jam. Those are the games I do love. I might not go. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's also got 40k. Oh, maybe I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> um, August 20, October 23rd and 20, or 22nd and 23rd is Blood and Gears. That is a War, war Machine only event. 
Uh, I believe uh, Brian's running it at the German Cultural Center on the south side. Uh, same weekend is Game A Lot, uh, which is up in St. Albert. This is a board game event. I believe it's hosted by Mission Fun and Games. And the same weekend as well... So if ignore, you, ignore all those other events and go to Onslaught instead. Uh, absolutely. Well, the, the biggest difference is that Onslaught is also going to have your Dystopian Wars, your 40K, your Age of Sigmar. Not just 40K. It's also going to be, right now, slated to be a major. So it will be the largest points doling out for ITC uh, tournament play. Yeah, this is kind of a in, big deal. In probably Canada outside of, the, uh, of Ontario, I think. Like the Southern Ontario Open, probably? Yeah, one of the, maybe, the, I can't remember if it's Southern Ontario, but one of them is, is same size. It's as big oh, okay. as it goes. This is same level as, uh, like, LBO. We get the same number of points. So well, not quite the same number of points because it probably won't have 400 people playing. Yeah, <laughs> but it will be the same multiplier. Yeah, absolutely. So check that out. Um, and again, if you're wanting any other systems, I believe there's pro- like um, there all the info is up online at this yep. point. Ward's got again posted in probably all of the groups. And we've pimped it out basically every episode since the beginning of time. Yeah, it's going to be in a sweet hotel. Yeah, yeah. the venue good. is actually up to like a whole new level this year, so it yeah. is actually going to be pretty grandiose. And there's gonna probably going to be a Hobby Night in Canada room in the hotel, so if you guys want to come have drinks with us there. Signature drinks as well is what we've been told. So Signature uh, We're going to be there. We're going to have swag and everything at the event as well, so if you want to check out any of those sweet t-shirts and dice and some new tokens. Shut up and give us your money. Yay! Um, And then the last one is November 5th and 6th, 2016. I don't know why I'm saying the year here. Um, (laughs) Is the Banshee Paint Class at Imaginary Wars in Calgary, and I am going. I've put my deposit in. So It's going to be a lot of fun. Apparently the last one they did with Matthew Fontaine was phenomenal. Um, And it doesn't matter what your painting skill is. You're either going to learn... Um, something you're either going to learn a bunch of stuff you haven't learned before, or you're going to learn different <laughs> approaches to you're like, learn things. Well, that but you have not learned before. But it's not going to be overly daunting, right? Yes. Like there's any level gotcha. of painter can go to this, and the trick is with any painting seminar or lesson you go to, um, you're not always going to pick up everything brand new, and you're not always going to retain every single thing. But if you get one take home from a class like this, it's normally worth it. So I strongly encourage going. And when you have absolutely world-class uh, yeah. painters leading the charge, you can't help but improve. It's a great atmosphere for learning. Not only that, it also gives you a great connection to other painters in the community, which is something that is currently growing. Networking. Uh, and I got to say, one of the single biggest things for me in the last year was constantly sending photos back and forth with Steve uh, Hall, not this Steve. Yeah, I mean, uh, fuck this guy. I'm, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well... He wasn't painting 40K models. Yeah, that's Um And so we we kind of give each other some feedback and some cri- critiques and criticism on different models, and uh, we wouldn't have really had that connection had we not met at Lock and Load. Or we, we knew each other, but we didn't really know each other that well, but hung out at Lock and Load doing the painting competition thing. Tinder's a hell of a thing. Right? Yeah. It's uh, a hell of a drug. So you guys going to bring down some real models next year? Maybe it's like bring down some 40K to Lock and Load? Probably not. Show them how it's done? Probably not. But I actually might sneak down some Malifaux models to play in the hotel. Because, like, a lot of the guys were, like... I feel like that is sacrilegious, dude. <laughs> like, will they just stab you if they find out? Like, I don't know how that works. No, I don't think so. Well, they just... Uh, that, yeah. No, I think next year... I, I don't know what I'm going to do next year, because it's either going to be my Cephalix or my Scorn, and I have no idea where it's going to well, go at this point. I hope your Cephalix gets cleared right up with a little bit of antibiotics. <laughs> I, I don't want to use too many antibiotics. Like, <laughs> we can't just let that be a go-to thing all the time. Yeah, not all bugs <laughs> need drugs. <laughs> Cephalax do. Cephalax for sure. You got yourself a case of the Cephalax, you need to see the doctor. Fair. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So, um, until next time, 
Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Hobby Name Canada. I'm Tom. I'm Steve. I'm Dan. And paint your fucking models. Have fun playing games. And we'll see you at Onslaught. <laughs>